I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. My guest is Genevieve Dretches, and we're going to be talking about an amazing and powerful new book titled Weird Against the Modern World by Ramon Elani, which is a scathing critique of modernity and the consequences that we're beginning to see unfold before our eyes with climate change and what appears to be the unfolding destruction of our world. So a quick question for you. How do you say that word weird? Just exactly like that, weird. Weird. It is weird. (laughs) It's very weird. Every possible pun intended. It was interesting to listen to you describe the book because one of the things that's incredible to me is how differently people respond to the book. And I agree with your description. I mean, to say that it's a scathing rebuke of modernity, I certainly couldn't disagree with any of that. I think when I experienced the book, it felt like less of a critique and more of a softening and opening for me. But that's the beauty of the conversation we get to have. It's definitely a scathing rebuke of modernity, but I felt myself slip through a portal and there was a lot of relief for me in the book. Talk about that. You've known me for many years, but I've definitely always wondered if it was being a misanthrope or, you know, as a Gen Xer and all of the things that come along with being 50 years old and growing up in America right now and the world and the whole process that we're watching unfold. I always felt pretty cynical about our culture and what was happening and our ability to cope with what looked like insurmountable problems that were developing around us, that it didn't really look like we were tackling in any kind of sincere way. So oftentimes discussions about climate catastrophe or social issues felt really insincere and just ineffectual to me. And even to the extent of wondering, you know, are people being sincere? Are they really admitting what they think? And I think in that respect, I definitely, with this book, I really felt it was incredibly relieving when I read his, as you said, scathing critique of modernity. I felt like I was finally listening to someone being truthful about what was happening. So I think for me, the main feeling of emotional connection was about validation 
finding a person who perceived things more the way I naturally was perceiving things and not finding other people very often who perceived them the same way. And telling it like it is, you know, not pussyfooting around with it. Absolutely. I mean, there was just a tremendous feeling of release there for me. And that's so interesting, too, as an old therapist who hasn't practiced for years, you hit the nail on the head. There's definitely that piece about telling the truth and validation. And oftentimes that truth can be horrifying in this case, especially. But it's really important to tell the truth, right? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating kind of uh, paradox, the way you felt reassured by this very grim telling of the truth of what is happening. Being reassured despite the fact that he's talking about the unraveling and destruction of the world as we know it. I loved that feeling. It felt welcoming. It felt like being welcomed home. And what I mean by that is it's not something I feel like, you know, connecting with in a desire to see the destruction or to see the suffering that's coming with the destruction. But it did restore so much for me inside my heart, the sense that we are not anything but another species in the world. And that there's so many things bigger and broader than us. And just having that validation of a person laying it out in such erudite, lengthy ways, it felt like a process of unfolding with that and settling into realizing that a lot of my childhood feelings, the things that felt the most magical about being alive, actually were there to connect to in this perspective of what's happening. That there are magical forces in the universe that are greater than us, that we're just a part of. I loved how that brought nature to life in a sacred way and really restored that for me. I felt that on my own, but connecting to something that evaluates our culture this broadly and really plays into all those angles and crevices was huge for me. Yeah, it's such an incredibly profound book. And his language, at the same time, it's profound, but it's also very disturbing at times. My sense of it is like, he's talking about the curse of modernity, is that we have been systematically reducing the incomprehensibly vast complexity of the universe down to this tiny narrow range of assumptions about the world, only supported by our five physical senses. And then in our arrogance, we deny that anything else exists. And we see ourselves as separate and superior to the natural world. It's so interesting. I love how different this is for all of us. I, again, totally agree with what you're saying, but I feel like I could trust those five senses to show me that there was a lot more than what our culture told us there was. And so I think for me, there was a sense that what our culture was showing us about the world, that we are this dominant creature who is somehow different and superior than anything else. And that we had gained a kind of superiority as a species that gave us this ability to dominate and do what we wanted to with the world. 
you know, that didn't feel genuine. That felt like it was entirely missing the point. But I totally agree with what you're saying overall. And I think what we're experiencing is just the different ways in which we describe what we think and feel. Yeah, I think the problem with that notion of the limitation of the five senses is that in modernity, we're channeling our five senses through our intellect only. And we're not perceiving, you know, that through our bodies and our hearts. And certainly we've been and continue to be trained to do that more and more, to feel certain things more than we feel other things or to acknowledge certain feelings more than we acknowledge others. But I love what you said about his language. It really attracted me in the sense that it felt very English literature professor kind of language, but there was another element that was very Northern European, like hags in the cave chanting around the fire. And a lot of his blog posts previous to the publication of the book were poetry. They were expressions of those feelings in his poetry, and they were very beautiful and intense and stark and dramatic and very much about sort of mingling the conscious and the unconscious. And that was what really initially attracted me to him. Yeah, I felt like he was, by reading his poetry and his own prose, the stuff that he wrote in italics, it felt like he was actually diving into my unconscious and stirring things up. I thought it was fascinating that he chose Lawrence and Robertson Jeffers and Jung. The way in which he brought all those elements into it was brilliant and interesting in its own right. It was like a side project to the heart message of the book for me. But it was really important. And to think about how those three had perceived this dilemma of feeling something wrong with our culture and fearing what it was doing or where it was leading us or what the culmination of that would be. It was interesting even just to have him bring elements of that you know, kind of principal folks from our accepted world of academia and literature into this argument in the way that he did. That was really interesting to me and also not necessary, if you know what I'm saying, but it added to it in some beautiful ways. I mean, one of the things that was just a fun aside for me was imagining how this worked for him in a conventional academic setting. I mean, I would love to have been a little mouse in the room when he first presented some of these thoughts to his dissertation committee. <laughs> or perhaps being in one of his literature classes where he's actually bringing up some of these things for discussion. I would have died in heaven. I mean, <laughs> I remember my undergraduate years in college as a religious studies and philosophy major and sitting in class and thinking, really, this is what we're going to talk about and this is what's happening in the world. It was really disappointing to me. And <laughs> this would have been my dream class, absolutely, is to have Ramon Alani teaching his conceptions of weird. And certainly as a pagan, there was an element of that which was really meaningful to me. The conception of weird in Northern European mythology and context 
everything about the ability to draw that hugely important assessment of things back to something that we've already had but lost was really meaningful and important to me. It's so much more than a sense of nostalgia to think about what we've lost. And there was a sort of right relationship aspect to the overall sensation of reading the book for me, a sense of being able to look at what we're waking up to, which lately I've been calling the great unraveling slash awakening, and realizing that I can perceive of it as a positive thing as a necessary thing. And it shifts a lot of the grief and sadness and anger and disbelief into a place of sort of in a psychedelic way, having to rethink all of this and realize that, you know, a key's being put in a lock with this, that this has to happen and it was inevitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know your story of college In some ways, it sounds very similar, except that I was fortunate enough to have a really positive experience, an unexpectedly positive experience in my like one year or one and a half semesters of college before I actually dropped out. Despite the magic that I discovered, I studied Eastern religions, philosophy and literature pretty much the same as you did. And I was also doing psychedelics, discovering psychedelics at the same time. and. I was pretty bored with Eastern religions until we got to Taoism and the light went on and it totally came alive for me. And in literature class, we were reading D.H. Lawrence and Hundred Years of Solitude. So there was a lot of magic going on and I dropped all the other classes that didn't interest me. And I was pretty bored with the philosophy class because it was pretty dry and lifeless. But the Taoism and the literature that we were reading was totally alive. And at the same time, amazingly enough, the movie Women in Love, which was, you know, based on D.H. Lawrence's book, Women in Love. Do you remember that movie? Absolutely. Me and my roommate, who was my best friend at the time, we went to see it because it was playing on campus. And we loved it so much that we went back the following night to see it again. It was so powerful. It's so funny to have us share these things with each other because we know each other well as it is. But I completely relate and also have my own nuances with that. I mean, I was in a heavily male religious studies and philosophy department where I got my undergraduate degree. There were a lot of old timers, wonderful professors, and no way do I want to denigrate that entire experience. But was I disappointed? Definitely. The only things that really felt to me like they were speaking to the dilemma at hand were ecofeminist and more alternative approaches to looking at how we ended up in this dilemma of having this amazing body and life on this amazing planet, and then we're going to do this with it. Sort of those earlier assessments that came in many ways out of radical environmentalism and feminism saying, you know, how did this happen that we started to use and abuse the planet and women and children in the way that we are? I mean, why do certain 
particularly privileged male dominant cultures do this and have this as their way of being and where does this come from and i think that was an interesting shift for me too reading weird there's a definite lack of gender politics in weird and it was almost refreshing in a way to realize that this can be perceived in a lot of different ways. And he came at this from a completely different way, his own wormhole to get to this place. But I've found other wormholes that felt like they were leading to this perspective, but they were just very, very different. They were kind of poetic voices from ecofeminism or deep ecology. And they were filled with things like gender issues and other more head-on kinds of conflicts within our culture. And somehow, one of the interesting things to me about weird is this takes it to a more spiritual or meta-analysis than all of that. There isn't a lot of race or gender politics in this book, but it's definitely at the very heart of what's happening. And that was really interesting to me, too. Yeah, I totally agree. Hearing you talk about that, his elucidation of this seemed to be completely free of any gender whatsoever. And yet, of course, our modernity is totally patriarchal. And without even using those terms, he was essentially crucifying patriarchy as being an essential part of modernity. He sort of connected it to techno-industrialism. Yes, thank you. Thank you for bringing that in. I've forgotten that term, but yeah, that was the language that he used. You know, there is, there's such interesting language in the book, and I found that it helped me to shape and make discernments in my own thinking process about this, things that I hadn't necessarily gotten to or been able to twist into quite that distinct a place. And that was another fascinating part of reading it. I mean, obviously, Lawrence and Jung and Robinson Jeffers are three male authors. But other than that aspect of the choice of those three authors that he uses to bring in and play out that reality for him. It's a fascinating read in so many ways right now. But fundamentally for me, it validated my sense of the ultimate heart of the world as being this magical and incredible multi-layered natural experience based in nature where the heart and the magic is in nature. And we're just a part of this, having this experience. It felt really relieving to be able to put down the burden of this incredible cultural mandate that we've had since we were little. It really felt cleansing to me in a lot of, lot of ways. And it's interesting what you talked about with Taoism, which I also relate to so much. I shared this book with a Taoist and a traditional Chinese medicine doctor in California who also loved it and had a really interesting response to it. There is a lot of Taoism in this, and it's beautiful to see these disparate places and thoughts and philosophies all carrying the kernel of this, whether it's Taoism or Northern European source paganism. 
And it is magical to me. That has always been the most magical archetype for me, like the hags in the cave weaving the fates and that we have all control and no control. And, you know, it was beautiful to me how he brought all of these disparate voices into this book and yet says something really clear and specific and precise with it, which is that this isn't the end of the world. This is this necessary conclusion to the monstrosity wormhole that we went down and that it's going to be an incredible cleansing. And that, to me, was the ultimate takeaway from it. Yeah, that's another wonderful part of this book is that he talks about the nature of this natural world that we're a part of is that it's not a linear progression the way modernity paints it to be. It's a cyclical, unending process of death and rebirth and death and rebirth and there's no escape from it. It's an inevitable part of life in this world. And when I say this world, I don't mean just the most physical aspect of the world. It also includes the magical, mysterious parts of the world, the parts that modernity has denied or is just completely ignorant of. And we have been so heavily programmed to block out. I mean, I still struggle to bring in these elements, even though, like you, I have had a a kind of misanthropic bent about the world and an inclination to reject what society has been shoveling down my throat continually and knowing deep inside that it's all wrong. They've got it all wrong. It's just that where to find the truth. And for me, it just took so many decades to uncover enough layers of crap to reveal, you know, to be able to perceive what is innately there in the natural world that's all around us and inside of us and that we're completely not separate from it all. It was both profoundly sad to me and profoundly relieving in that respect, Tonio. I felt incredible sadness at the wasted time and energy, you know, sort of having the bounty and the feast in front of us and mistaking it in the ways that we have. That was profoundly sad, but I share with you this sense that sadness has been present our whole lives, right? I mean, having the meaningfulness of connecting it to this broader perspective and realize I can shift that. I mean, that was the interesting thing to me is feeling the levels of indoctrination that we've all had. And yeah, it's ponderous and incredible. But I share that. I mean, it's it is deep and magical to realize that the cycle of nature and that is such an inadequate phrase to describe it. But those cycles of birth and death of chaos and regeneration are really it. And it's been comforting to me in an interesting way during these pandemic days to think about my ancestors and the scope of their life. And you know how much of a home and garden-based nester I am, and definitely a bit of a hermit. But certainly that profound piece of the book felt deeply beautiful to me. And I feel much more connected to my ancestry since this pandemic experience of recognizing that our lives used to be 
on a profoundly smaller scale, that we lived in these places in a home with certain people, and we lived to some extent or another much more closely to the land that we lived on. And there's been a sense for me of not experiencing some of the hardships that other people are experiencing around having their activities limited by the pandemic. And I realized last winter that for me, there is this sense of innate pleasure at being at home, of having what I want and need here, and that it feels like more than enough for me. And I felt like in many respects, that piece is present in the book as well, that notion of being able to become so much more small scale in the universe again of just being a person experiencing their magical life in this magical and amazing cycle of wherever you happen to be and wherever your nature is. I also feel that profoundly, that disparity that we're here in Vermont in this bubble, that I was able to go outside and experience nature throughout this process. And that's interesting. I mean, that's a deeply moving part of the book to me as well, that other species and entities and living aspects of this world are going to be restored as a result of our massive failure as an industrial culture that's going to take this, you know, this dive that's going to play itself out in whatever way it does. That there's actually a restoration for so many other species and for the overall process of the cyclical return of nature to become dominant again. And I guess that feels really profoundly moving and satisfying to me. Of course, that is the most dominant force. And of course, if we live against it to such an extent, we're going to get flushed out and leveled, so to speak brought back into the fold and, you know, have to awaken to realizing that was just a crazy dream of superiority and dominance and power. Yeah, that was another wonderful, wonderful part of this book that made me connect with this notion that this cyclical process really does level things and it destroys our you know, petty little personal individual concerns, thinking that we have this this unique right to exist in perpetuity on this planet, you know, in any way we so desire. And life is not about our personal individual concerns. Life is a much larger process involving so many different species. And there's an evolution to all of this that unlike human beings, arrogant, intellectually oriented human beings, the rest of life just, in a sense, innately accepts its place in the cyclical process and doesn't, I mean, obviously, instinctually, all life seeks to live and to survive, but death is a natural part of the process. And we humans, modern, intellectually oriented humans, have this delusion that we can cheat death, that we can avoid the laws of the universe. So funny. I think I've shared this with you before, but I have an old friend and a wonderful person and a brilliant person, but he actually is a scientist whose entire devotional practice is the belief that we can 
prolong human life incredibly. And he deeply believes in this as a, you know, kind of benevolent thing that could happen where death was something that wouldn't take place for humans for hundreds or thousands of years. Anyway, it was a parting of the ways in terms of our philosophies, but I so feel what you're saying because it's not a surrendering in this perception. We're not having to surrender anything. We're waking up to something that feels so much more magical and alive and real than what we have left to believe in in our current techno-imperial or industrial culture, which there's no magic in and there's no mystery in. It's like, how much can we dominate and use everything up? And just so much denial involved in that. I mean, I think that's been the painful piece of being alive at this moment, is there was so much denial to contend with. And it almost became like painfully difficult to handle all that denial. And I love that. That's such a huge piece of the pleasure of this book for me is the restoration of the mystery and the magic and, you know, the realization that we're gaining something back by the loss of this culture that is so much bigger and more important and where all the magic is and was and will be, so to speak. You know, it's a very different perception of what's happening than to think of it as a sixth extinction or to continue to think of it in sort of this dominant scientific mindset of what's happening right now. Right. Cause and effect and linearity. Right. Exactly. I mean, that this is about, you know, we've reduced this to this notion of, quote unquote, climate catastrophe or environmental change. I mean, it just depersonalizes it so much. We don't even really have to think of it in the sense of, no, this is something we did together. We all created this and did this. And that's a tough place for me, too, because I feel like there's sort of, in my perception, the enormous they, right, the powers that be. And it's uncomfortable now as we all talk about these things to realize that it does feel like there's been a fundamental loss of power for most people in the system, that we're just watching this happen. We're watching ourselves running over the cliff, and there's very little power left for most of us in what's happening. And so I guess there was a gaining of some power there for me as well to realize, no, this is inevitable, of course, and it's not a destructive force, except in the sense that there's the destructive piece before the regeneration. Yeah, the destructive force is an essential part of the overall creation maintenance and destruction cycle of the world, of the universe. It's just innate in the whole thing. And modernity, of course, this techno-industrial modernity has systematically stripped away all of the magic and mystery from the world. And Jung speaks of the dream world as having been exiled. You know, the dream world is what we're left with because we've exiled the dream world. We've separated it and denied it. But it's so wonderful that we have access to the dream world. And there's a quote from Jung that I really like. In this world is man, the creator and destroyer of his own world. 
I love that. And I loved the use of Jung and, you know, I love him. And I think the beauty of that notion that we created these shadow monsters, I mean, that we were in some part of ourselves aware of how this was going to end. And the denial, I think the pressure I've felt around that incredibly building denial is just the pressure of that shadow piece coming in that, you know, we have played this hand out till the, you know, very end. And now the pieces that are going to take place are what we have avoided, you know, at the greatest effort, but they're unavoidable. And so that piece is really profound for sure. And yet there's also something there for me that we haven't talked about. And it's that tension and I'm really feeling it lately. And I think I did earlier in my life as well, because being alive and a child and an adolescent in the 70s and 80s as sort of the new age spiritual movement developed. And my mother was very involved in that. And all those philosophies and attitudes played a big part of my childhood. And I think there was something that felt so inherently wrong about much of that to me as well. And it felt like a kind of twisting that could only come from the culture that we're talking about, that we would create this sort of hyperbolic other place that was all love and light. And I feel like that's happening right now in some interesting ways. I haven't been on social media for a long time. And I started an Instagram account in my name and for Behaven Honey Farm some months ago. And it's been really interesting to be a part of social media again. And certainly in my experience on social media right now, that's really present again, that sort of you know, humans are sort of waking up to this new age of Aquarius. And it's this, you know, it just feels like such crap to me, honestly, this kind of glittery, we're going to supersede and ascend to this new place. And it just feels so disingenuous. It feels like, no, this is going to be an incredible amount of suffering and destruction. And it's going to impact everything. It's going to be a terrible, dark and intense experience that's coming. There's nothing, you know, glittery and rainbowish about what's happening right now. And that was present for me. I really appreciated the full on acceptance of the darkness that this is and what is going to happen and what people who are living in this time and the times to come are going to be experiencing. It was another layer of that truthfulness to me that made this experience of reading the book so grounding and that I appreciated so much that there is death and chaos and we have created it. And those are the dominant pieces of the passage we're entering. And they have been for a while. I'm not saying that they haven't, but I think you know what I'm saying there. It's not um, It's not going to be, you know, a unicorn ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Ramon really lays the axe to that whole delusional trip. And, you know, we have to learn and accept that dark and light come together and there's no escape from either. And for so long, we have clung to light and the good and what we prefer and what we desire so hard and the dark is coming now 
yeah, to balance out that obsession with the light that we've clung to. So strangely, right? It's um, sort of like, remember in Game of Thrones, winter is coming? Absolutely. That's definitely what that phrase meant to us. And in this newer series, Britannia, the mantra is, the darkness is coming. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it is fascinating to me, and I may be imagining this in my mind, but doesn't Ilani reference that in certain parts of the book where he talks about, and we've all talked about this, I mean, certainly that analytical notion that our art is revealing to us before our conscious minds what we've created and what's happening. I mean, certainly growing up in the 80s, I mean, God, I, we watched the sickest and weirdest. I mean, the horror movies and the science fiction that I grew up on completely spelled all of this out. And it's fascinating to me that we could be both so conscious and so unconscious. And yes, absolutely, that bizarre and and so clear obsession with, you know, somehow ascending spiritually and making any of this into something that was about love and light or human consciousness development you know well, it's not it's, separately it can't it can't be separated and clung to and excluding the dark it's like if we can really deeply accept the darkness there is light in the darkness but if we reject the darkness then all we'll end up with is pure darkness yeah, definitely. The integrity of wholeness was this theme in the book that he plays out in such brilliant ways, that it's a deep and mysterious wholeness. And there's no way out of the paradox there. And the paradox is both magical and beyond our ability to conceive. And that feels so truthful. Mm -hmm. The five senses that, yes, that is what it's like to experience life. It is incomprehensible and amazing and magical and filled with all of the components of paradox. And we're not meant to figure it out or comprehend it. We're just meant to directly experience it and go along for that incredibly magical, powerful, catastrophic ride. I love that so much. Return to the, the mystery and the magic of those elemental forces that we're not in control of feels really beautiful and to say soothing there's an element of thinking about it that way that does feel very soothing to me and in ramon's language i mean he's a literature former literature professor and he comes from this northern european tradition which is rife with gods as representations of the primal forces of nature and that's that's something that i did not grow up with at all. It wasn't in any of my studies or learning or spiritual practices. So that's a new no, language for me. No, I mean, you think that's the difference for us? I grew up rural and I come from ancestors that were, you know, peasant farmers. I come from that Northern European tradition and am both, you know, conqueror and conquered. Scandinavian, Viking, Gaelic, Celtic, 
Northern German, but I grew up rural and those elemental forces were really present all around me. You know, the Minnesota winters and tornadoes in the summer and, you know, growing up in this incredible childhood dominated by nature and the magic of nature. And it was right at the cusp of that moment before big ag had taken over. And growing up in rural Minnesota was so full of elemental forces and magic. And certainly I wasn't seeing that or being taught that, although perhaps that was present for me as well in other ways. But that's interesting to me to hear you say that. And I wonder to how it affected you to be a child in New York City in that respect. Yeah, I was just thinking about that, that in New York City, in a big city, they create a completely artificial environment in a very powerful way to insulate us from the natural world and to provide all of the things that normally we would be growing, cultivating directly from the earth ourselves. And yeah. the city, it's just concrete and shops and stores and restaurants and, and all these sort of artificial means of reaping the harvest of the world. Totally. I mean, it's like a temple to that techno-imperial world. Exactly. We <laughs> the other day about, you know, it was commentary on post-Hurricane Ida, and it was the morning after the storm had hit in the Northeast. And, you know, we said to each other, God, I wonder when we're going to start to hear it on the news where Instead of saying, well, you know, the dikes held and this system worked and how can we possibly, you know, do subways in a way that are going to work as we experience the rising waters and the climate catastrophe. I mean, something that's still missing in our general discussions of these things, what we hear discussed and how the news is telling the story we're not ready yet to say, well, we've got to get out of a lot of these places. This is going to happen very quickly from here. And we were just commenting on how strange it is to be watching this. And I think to some extent, many people must be feeling and thinking this way. You know, this is not something we're going to just be able to continue to push another five years, 10 years, 15 years down the line. It's obviously happening now. And it's interesting to me that we're still not piercing that denial on a broader level and seeing things in a more general societal perception or discussion that's saying, well, you know, people aren't going to be able to live in this vast area. What are we going to do with that? Where are those people going to go? How are we going to deal with their housing? And then it was in New York, as we talked about it, as the temple of that techno-imperial culture that is breaking apart right now. I mean, watching the water flood into the subways and realizing how quickly this can happen and how quickly it is happening, that we're experiencing it now and we're still not able to put ourselves in a place of acknowledging what's really happening. I'm a little obsessed with that. Are people broadly aware of that? And we're all colluding together in not talking about it in a way that makes us feel safer in the moment? Or really, is there still such denial happening that it doesn't seem real to people that this is going to be something we're watching 
in the years that we're in right now and in the immediate 5, 10, and 15 years from this moment. I think we are still in this denial and illusion that we can engineer our way out of this mess. And in this book, Ramon clearly states, we'll not be able to engineer our way out of this. You know, he uses very colorful language. He says, the gods are returning to the world. The gods that modernity has exiled from the world, the great forces of nature that we have exiled from the world are coming back to level the playing field, to restore balance to this world that we have dominated and attempted to control. And to some degree, we have been successful in controlling for several thousand years, but our time is up at this point. And I think we're still in denial. We, Many of us, I mean, the mainstream science still believes that it can figure its way out of anything. And it's quite a delusion and, and denial, I think. I do too. I mean, I loved and appreciated that he addressed that to some extent, and I can't think of where that was in the book, but I think he does even say, you know, let's let's consider that maybe an Elon Musk of the world creates something that gives us a short-term sense that we're going to be able to beat this back or change it somehow, and that that would be an, another, just a last layer of illusion, because this is such an unavoidable truth and reality that's going to happen. Yeah, and may cause even more damage. Yeah, absolutely. It would just be another layer of prolonging something that's inevitable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like when people are starving and they're trapped together, they start eating each other because that's the only solution that makes sense. And yet there's still no escape. Yeah, no escape is a little bit like winter is coming, right? I mean, no escape has been so helpful to me in my life. That notion of this is it. And I think that notion that we could escape is maybe just something from our techno-imperial culture. And I think that's the beauty of the wholeness as he presents it in the book is it's not something you want to escape. It's something inherent and the way that it is, it's an inescapable and majestic and amazing elemental universe that we're a part of. And the ability to imagine the planet and humanity going back to a more right relationship is really profoundly beautiful and relieving. Yeah, and I love the way he talks about how it would be a nightmare to actually preserve this world and continue it on the way it's going. I loved that too, Tonio. I deeply loved it. And I think about that. I actually work on that in meditation and think about just letting this process flow to a place where we are restored again to the greater unity. And that that is a really beautiful and powerful thing to work with right now and let that happen as if we had the control to begin with is what we're talking about. But it is really an amazing thing to me that he, and I'd love to know more about what motivated him intellectually and what his own life was like that led him to come to some of these conclusions. Because it felt very much like, as we talked about touching on those younger days in our lives where we experienced 
or we're trying to find places to experience what we were feeling inside and seeking some meaning and dialogue around that with other people, whether it was through psychedelics or academia or living your life in a certain way. I mean, I would love to know how he came to feel this and presented it and gathered it all and then had this come out of him. It's beautiful and amazing. Well, I think we'll have to ask him. (laughs) I'd love to. (laughs) Because I've been thinking about reaching out to him and, you know, doing an interview with him, with you. I'd love that. I'd absolutely love it. I have sent him some strange fan mail. (laughs) (laughs) And I ordered a bunch of the books from Night Forest Press, and I just kind of drop them on friends like a strange little gift and say, you know, no pressure. Read this if you feel like it. It was really life changing for me, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And I think I've shared with you Most people don't even, I don't think even make it to reading the book, but it's unfortunate because there's so much in the book that we need right now. And it really, for me and others I know, profoundly shifted things about what we're experiencing right now as a certain kind of person that I'm deeply grateful for and more than anything else that I can think about. Yeah, I have great appreciation for the courage that he has to tell the truth in such stark terms and also to do it as poetically and magically as he has done, which is not easy to do when talking about something as dark and grim as this, particularly to a world like ours. I think you just said that so well, Tonio. The magic is so intact in his presentation of these thoughts. And to say that it's dark, I mean, it's only dark in the sense that we've tried to, you know, cleanse our lives of that mystery or that perception of darkness. And that's a beautiful thing to think about is that, you know, what we have culturally been led to think darkness is and light are these concepts that you know, in in and of themselves, we've been so mistaken about. Isn't that interesting how light and dark, they don't really exist in reality. They only exist in contrast with each other. As soon as you create one, the other is born with it. And it's part of the dualistic nature of our world, which is another paradoxical nature of this whole thing, because The magic and mystery is part of all of this at the same time. It's not a transcendent aspect of it. And yet there is the ability to transcend polarity and all of that. But it's not in the new age way of only light and only, you know, pink teddy bears and things like that. Yeah, it's so interesting to me that we would create that as a spiritual perception or conception, and it could only come from a culture like ours. But I deeply loved how he really brought that. I mean, I and I guess the sense of, as we call it, dark, the last 15 pages of the book, the 
honesty and the bravery right on. I mean, I really wonder what he encountered in presenting this. And I wonder who supported it. It's just a beautiful thought to think about being a person like him who has this message. And it's obviously a culmination of his own spiritual and intellectual experience with the world. And it's so out there by most people's perception. But it's so utterly not. And it's so undeniably true. There were a few paragraphs at the end of the book that I just felt like, well, there it is. That's a paragraph that encapsulates the moment that I got embodied in this planet and what I've experienced. And this has been it. So, I mean, deeply moving to me overall and very, very hopeful. Is there anything that you would like to read from the book right now? I do have the book with me and it is well pawed and penciled. So let me see if I can find anything in that last section. Because I also have a couple of things from that last section that I earmark and am ready to read as well. <laughs> so. so I'll read you my very favorite. And to me, this was the takeaway. And of course, you will recognize a lot of me in this. So, of course, this is the paragraph I would find that most speaks to me. The human world is in ruins. It will not get better. The sooner we can withdraw from it, the better. Timothy Leary was right when he urged young people to drop out in 1966. His message is all the more profoundly true today. Life in urban industrial society has no future. The modern world has failed on all levels. Capitalism and industrialism cannot be reformed. The gods have fled. Whether or not we can become completely independent of industrial society is irrelevant. The fact that it's difficult and perhaps impossible to utterly separate should not be used as an argument against withdrawal. Connection to the gods and the land is ultimately more important than material self-sufficiency. To whatever extent you're compelled and able, withdraw from society and make the home the center of your life. And then he concludes that with the always moving to me, W.B. Yeats, quote, come away, O human child, to the waters and the wild, with a fairy hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. I love that, especially that Yeats at the end. Beautiful, right? Yep, yep. I love that he also heralds beauty so much in the book. The beauty of the wholeness. I mean, that this isn't just a dark vision, that this is about a restoration of so many beautiful things. Okay, so I'll just start here. The return of the gods into the world will not be a quiet, peaceful affair. They are owed too much, and we will pay the price in recompense for hundreds of years of denial and hubris. When the world falls, it will fall with the suffering cries of billions, the wrathful gods will not be kind, though we know that in the very force and brutality of their wrath lies the healing kiss, which will transform the profane world of shopping centers, housing developments, factories, and prisons into a verdant paradise once again. This change will not come quickly, 
and it is unclear if humanity will ever live to see the restoration of the world complete. But we have now departed from the time of modernity and its pathological compulsion for acceleration and speed. In the time of dreams and the gods, all things unfold as they will, unhurried, synchronous. Moments bubble up here and there from the vast eternal sea and then recede. Shapes emerge and dissipate, and in such a manner will the restoration of the earth occur. A thousand years, a hundred thousand years, much of what we have made will disappear quickly, like the cities and great expanses of concrete. Some of it, like the sacrilegious poisons we conjured in hellish laboratories and factories, will take longer, but one way or another, in time, all that we have made and done in these last 500 years will thankfully pass away. Forests will rise again over the world. Snow and ice will return to the poles. The seas will burst with life. The world will be as it was again. And in time, all this shall be repeated over and over again. The gods will return to the land and with them growth and the bright light of the cosmos. Again, they will be chased away into darkness, driven out by the arrogance of their children. Corruption, wretchedness, and decay will come upon the world, which will in time be washed away again in fire and flood by the return of the gods and the spirits of the earth. God, that's so beautiful to me. Bring it on. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it's also scary. It's hard to let go. I'm, I'm mostly let go. I mean, I just feel like it's been such a sad tragedy what we've done that that unavoidable reality, that beautiful truth feels so much more heartright and wonderful to me. I mean, to be restored to what our human lives can and should be within that greater context feels like and also just the restoration of the elemental forces of the planet to imagine nature not in the horrible dire straits in which we've inflicted the wounds that we have. I mean, that's such a profoundly sad thing to carry around in the world right now. And that's such a beautiful passage that he wrote to think about the return of those cycles is really is so meaningful to me. Yeah. And the truth of it is it really rings true and it feels so right to just hear it and to fully accept it yeah and even as a pagan person to to worship that to have that be what we worship feels yeah. right relationship mm -hmm. yeah it takes courage it takes courage to let go of the world that we've known the controlled comfortable world that we've done you know i think that's the the place of uh of fear right now for so many people as we watch the unraveling happen and more people beginning to slowly wake up to the deeper meanings of what is taking place yeah in past times earlier in my life i was much more cavalier about the inevitable destruction of this world like back in the days of nuclear catastrophe and stuff it was like we have so up this world bring it on you know we don't deserve to live but now i'm much more 
empathetic and understanding of people's fear of letting go of what has been familiar for so long and has actually been the only thing that people know and can conceive of, even though it's a complete delusion. It is another thing I can say right there with you on that. I mean, to become older and more aware is such a profound experience in and of itself. And to realize that you know nothing and to perceive of your parents and elders in your life in the new light that comes to you with the awareness of getting older and realizing what they coped with and dealt with, all of those sort of truths. But for sure, the level of suffering that's going to happen is going to be immense. And it's really frightening and hard to fathom. But it's a reality. And it's an unavoidable reality. And we're, we're watching it beginning to happen. And I think those of us here in Vermont, we're going to have we're going to have one of those sort of ringside seats where we're going to get to see a lot of this suffering unfold before it reaches us. So we're going to be carrying a lot of this suffering. I really feel that. I mean, I oftentimes that's a prayer for me in the world at this moment is how do you witness this? How do you authentically witness this? And where do you put yourself in that? And also just the extent to which it's been so bought and sold. And there's still so many places in the world that just want to have what we have. There's so many layers to it. And it's, I guess, very moving and profound to see him be able to take such a big picture view and bring it down to the book that we're talking about. But he does succeed, in my view, really, he succeeds in doing that, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, this is the first book of its kind that I've ever come across, really. He really lays it out there in the starkest terms. I agree. And also the most hopeful. I mean, that paradox is so fully present in the book. It is very stark and it's very hopeful. Yeah. If we can let go of clinging to our separate identities, you know, and the survival of our separate selves. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, it is also the first book. You said that really well, that I, I felt like, wow, this, you know, I'm glad I was alive to read this book. And that sounds really silly in some respects, but I do feel that way. I mean, it felt really good and it helped me sort of recalibrate this incredible moment we're living in in some pretty major ways that were already there for me, but I hadn't been able to organize in as complete a way as he does in in the book itself. Yeah, that's the thing. He catalyzed this. And also, it is about weird. I mean, I remembered thinking in the first reading, what is this about that he named the book weird? I mean, I understand what weird is as a concept, and it's deeply meaningful to me on my own spiritual path. But I mean, it really is. And I think that some people could critique the book that way to say this is just a return to kind of pagan thinking. And, you know, perhaps that is how some people will perceive it, I'm sure. But that is such a big bite right there in and of itself. And the notion that we have a part to play in the weird, that we're a part of the overall 
amazing paradox of the world and its elemental forces and that it's not just us is such a beautiful not just us in our ugliness and strangeness and denials and these weird things that we chose to do in the last 500 years or so with the planet and how deeply wrong they've been and how much denial they have asked us to all participate in together. Mm -hmm. I think that people will be wondering, well, what is this, what does this term weird mean? And I would love for you to kind of flesh that out in whatever way is comfortable for you, even though it's almost, it almost seems sacrilegious to do it. But I had this strong sense that weird was a term that sort of represented the broad sense of the soul of the world of the entire natural world of and all of its magical elements. You nailed it. I mean, that's exactly what it is. I mean, the three Norns sit underneath the world tree and they dip into a well and they weave. And weird is the notion that everything is greater than us, that our fate is deeply mysterious and paradoxical and that it's being laid out by forces other than us and that it's also inexplicable, that we can't be aware of our fate, but that it is exactly what you said. It's a beautiful, deep, and paradoxical notion of a many, many layered system that's full of magic at the heart of the universe. And I love the notion of the three old norns weaving that and that everything is connected that you pull one little thread of the weird and it impacts the entire weird and yet you can't even find the detail in it enough to I think of it as a knitter as well it's not like something you can knowingly weave or take part in because it's so enormous and mysterious and magical so the weird really is that deep mystery of fate, of what that is, and that there is no answer, but that it is something, and that it's something that's being affected by forces much greater than us that we can and can't tap into. So I think, I mean, for me, the titling of the book, Weird, is an argument for reclaiming that, for putting ourselves back into the context of what a human is in the greater natural system of our planet and recognizing that that place is so much more than enough. And it restores, it restores everything in that very notion that we have the magic to live and indulge in this beautiful life within these natural cycles that are the elemental forces of weird, that we will never be able to really, I wonder to what extent will happen as things restore over time on the planet. We'll just have an opportunity to try again, I guess, and see what happens. I mean, that myth is there in so many traditions over and over again. Yeah, there's powerful metaphors in all this. Um, Ramon refers to the hazel and the salmon of life or the world tree, and refers to them as a kind of axis mundi, or center point, which establishes an orientation 
in relation to the whole. And again, since that wasn't a part of my earlier learning, my closest correlation might be that of one's, you know, innermost essence and seeing that same essence in everyone and everything, and thus there being a virtual infinity of center points, kind of like that notion of the weaving and pulling of any thread and that thread being connected to everything else, kind of like the notion of Indra's web, where everything is connected to everything else through every point. You know, it struck me as we were in this last moment of the conversation, how important a part of the book it is. And that I said earlier in our conversation that somehow this is devoid of issues of race or gender or class. And I think it is. But on the other hand, it's very much a return to indigenous thinking. I mean, it's not as if our entire planet has participated in what's happened. Indigenous cultures around the planet have been telling dominant culture for a long time, this is, you know, WTF, this is not going to lead anywhere good. And I think that's an important thing to recognize, because in many respects, what he is saying as a white dominant culture person is he's returning to his indigenous pathway as a Northern European, and he's restoring that perception, that pre-industrial or techno-imperial culture, the way it broke down all that magic and deserted it. And weird is, you know, is that return. And I think that's certainly something we're seeing and hearing about and people are pursuing on their own as participants in dominant culture to recognize that they have an indigenous ancestral history of their own. And when you talk about the hazel and the salmon of knowledge and the axis mundi and the world tree, I mean, that's the magic of our Northern European heritage. That is our indigenous path of ancestry as a Northern European white person living in Worcester, Vermont right now. And that has been deeply meaningful to me spiritually and my own path in this life is to recognize that I could turn around and look back at that ancestral heritage and work in that direction to find meaning and context to what's happening in my life right now. So definitely, I think for a lot of indigenous people, I mean, there's a big dot to this book. And it's those of us in dominant culture, you know, who had that broken and separated a long time ago. And obviously, you know, that breaking and that separation for all of us leads to the ability to break and separate our toys in every way. You know what I'm saying? The trauma begets more and more trauma. And it's what must shut us down from the capacity to say, hey, this is a really terrible idea. What are we doing? You know, what's the meaning of this? So in that context, I do feel like it's important to recognize this is a return to indigenous perceptions of the world. And that's really what he's arguing in this book. Yeah, and he talks of primeval wildness and our indigenous cultures were in direct contact in the midst of that. Yeah, in right relationship with all of those elemental forces. Right. Only way for us to have sustainable magic and right relationship is to be within that greater context. Yep. And for at least the last few thousand years, 
we have been moving steadily away from that. He did reference a point. I think he talks about the beginning of the Enlightenment and the beginning of ships moving across the planet and beginning to establish slave cultures in order to enact their goals as a certain point of origin for where that seed took and where we bloomed from. You know, we did have right relationship, and it's something that has existed before and hopefully will exist again. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it inevitably will, but the path to get there is still a mystery, and it will be chaotic. It'll be wild. Wild is the key word there, right? Yeah, it'll be way beyond our control. I'm really glad you read the book, Tonio, and we can talk about it so much. I'm so glad that you shared the book with me because, yeah, I think this is an incredibly important book. I mean, we as a species are in such great need of this kind of rude awakening. And just the introduction to be able to see things like this come out and be present and available for people if they want to pursue that perspective feels like a turning point to me. It's like waiting for the news to say, okay, where are we going to move these folks to? You know, it's the truth. And Mm -hmm. in that huge systemic way, it's the acknowledgement of the truth and doing the right thing. Yeah. And also accepting the right thing, even if it's beyond our doing. Yeah. Or if it's something we experience in some way is losing power. Exactly. Bring how power is to be gained from being restored to something more honest and truthful. There are a couple of lines that I really loved from Ramon's writing. We are the body of the cosmos. We are the dreams of the world. And we and the world are no more than mist and dew. So beautiful. So much magic and meaningfulness in that. I mean, isn't that more than enough? Yeah, I think the secret of the world is revealed there. If we can just relax and let go into that. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible and so strange. And another line, which is kind of paradoxical and very interesting. We look up at the eternal stars their implication suddenly becomes clear. We find that past and future are the same and that the present is the only illusion. So beautiful. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's like flying in the face of all this current talk about that the only thing that's real is the present moment. I think there's obviously the paradox right there. That is true. It is all we have is the living of the present moment, the now. But to me, that falls into that category. And I have another friend who is very much what I call a radical nowist to the extent that she really works and successfully to not expend any energy or worry or stress or anxiety or even excited anticipation about something that she isn't yet experiencing. And it's something that she and I have some interesting conversation about because I definitely work to be in the now, but I feel like there's also a little bit of denial in that. Maybe now is something we're using to escape the greater 
connections of the weird that it helps us to imagine that now is all there is when this is the now we happen to be living in and turning around and looking at the past or looking forward at the future is just really a very painful and frightening scenario. Yeah, looking at the past and imagining the future through the lens of denial rather than, you know, if we were seeing it honestly, then the present would be true because we we only see the past and imagine the future in the present. And if we're doing it from a place of denial and delusion, then it's a lie. It's an illusion. Yeah, if if seeking that now is just a form of escapism, I, I don't know that there's any spiritual growth in that. Well, it doesn't save us from the delusion of the past or our fears and hopes for the future that arise out of our past conditioning, our delusional notions of what we think or what we believe, particularly if it is not in alignment with the truth of what really is. And to me, that also connects it back to the fact that what he's talking about is an indigenous perspective of the world that is a cycle Um, and that there is a beginning and a growth period and a flowering and the beginning of the decay stage and the death and, and regeneration, that it's this endless cyclical process of these forces that are connected that can't be avoided or escaped. So maybe just that partitioning of any of those moments and attempting to be in them in an isolated way is what he's talking about or what we're feeling. And perhaps presence and being present in the present moment is a personal experience or individual direct experience. And of course, it's also beyond a personal experience, whereas the past and the future and the cyclical nature of the past and the future being the same and being parts of the same cycle are a much broader perspective, which I think he is calling us to include in our individual perspective to also include that broader perspective of the great cyclical nature of everything, which includes past and future. Absolutely. There's that old saying, if you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it. Of course, the past does repeat cyclically, but if we don't understand that, we enter it blindly the way we are right now. And we reap the whirlwind. We reap the consequences of it. Amazing. I mean, it feels like that's what we're going to be watching roll in is the tide is just more and more truth of this nature. And we have to accept that. We have to accept responsibility for what humanity has done, what techno industrial society has done. Even if we don't agree with it, we still have to accept responsibility for it and Witness it. Witness it and go through the grieving process, however that unfolds. Indeed. There is so much to talk about in this book. I feel like we've barely touched it, but we've put down some of our experience of the skeletal bones of it. Yeah, I think from here we could just pick out pieces that we want to dive into more deeply. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, certainly for me, There's some things I want to read again 
as a result of reading this book, I want to go back and read the Robinson Jeffers trilogy. I want to touch on some Jung again a little more deeply. And I want to read a couple D.H. Lawrence books because it's interesting to me how we all experience those in a more traditional English lit way without the deeper perceptions happening. Yeah, it's been 45, 46 years since I read D.H. Lawrence. Yeah, aren't you looking forward to it again in a new way? Winter is long and it is coming. (laughs) (laughs) If only I had time to read everything I wanted. I know you and I are definitely sharing that feeling together. There's never enough time for me. Sometimes when people are like, well, what do you do with your time? It's always such a funny question. And my own answers in my mind are kind of snotty and silly, but that's never a problem, right? Yeah. And thank God I don't have to work. You know, (laughs) and I still don't have enough time. Yeah. Yeah. I will say the work that Rick and I do can be really hard, but it's also really beautiful, deep, and it's on the land that we live on. It's gardening and working with the bees and figuring out a way to somehow make that a manageable system in the world today. But he's definitely calling for that. I mean, I think that's a reality. And we do see younger people focusing much more clearly and narrowly on that realm, I think, particularly in Vermont, an awareness that, you know, this is going to be a wild and interesting ride from here. Yep, it sure is. Thanks for enjoying talking about these things in the same way that I do, Tonio. You know that I've always treasured it in our relationship. Me too. And I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation as well. And I look forward to more of these conversations. Me too. Okay, until next time. Be Big well. Love, Antonio. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. That was Genevieve Drutchess. She's a local beekeeper and all-around mensch. And we've been talking about Ramon Elani's Weird Against the Modern World. Weird is spelt W-Y-R-D. Thrown like a star in my vast deep I opened my eyes to take a peek To find that I was by the sea Gazing with tranquility Just then when the pearly girl in my Singing songs of love Then when the herd of girl man Came singing songs And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Histories of ages past Unenlightened shadows cast Down through all eternity The crying of humanity Tis then when the hurdy gurdy man Comes singing songs of love Then when the hurdy gurdy man Comes singing songs of love Adi gadi, 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 adi g
Gadi, 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 Gadi,